I'm waiting for that oh. dentist at any moment to just bring out one of those instruments. <laughs> Am I sounding all right? Okay. Okay. Do you want me to do talk I, a little? Let her. Do I need to be a little uh, louder? Do I need? I can. I think Mitch is just <clears throat> He's he's fiddling with the controls. Okay. And, and he right, just needs to hear. We're ready now. Okay. So, so what we do in the program generally, and this absolutely fits the subject at hand is mm-hmm. we ground insights in story and in real experience, mm-hmm. religious insights and spiritual mm-hmm. insights in real experience. And that's very compatible with recovery and yes. the 12 steps. And so I, I want to start by hearing some of your story, sure. how I guess you could say in a broad sense that the subject of this program is the spirituality of addiction okay. and recovery. Yes. But the question to you would be, you know, tell me, Tell me how you came to know that subject through the experience of your life. Personally. Yeah. It's interesting. I started out um, Catholic school, okay, mm-hmm. product of Catholic school, Catholic church. And one of the things my mom removed me from Catholic school for because I was praying too much. I would come home and pray. That's all that I was supposed that all that's all that I wanted to do. Um, she thought I was too young to do that. And I only share that because it gives you a sense of uh, early formative years um, that relationship was, I was aware of it and desired it. And as a result of her removing uh, me from that through my younger years um, and early high school years, I was participating in a choir um, in Illinois where I was raised, born and raised. And uh, just really had a, a desire or um, hunger for this this spiritual aspect. Uh, was raised in a Lutheran church, that kind of thing. I was a uh, and I am a a foster child. I was raised by my uh, foster parents from age six weeks to age um, eighteen. And my biological parents were actually 16 and um, 14 when they had me. So that was quite young. It's young now, but back in those days, it was young as well. So being in this foster care system, even though I was in one home, by the grace of God, all of that time, I experienced some uh, dysfunction. Um, as a result of that, and about age 17, 18, I started using alcohol and drugs. Um, actually, when I share that or lecture, it, it's like the first time you pick up, it's like, my God, where have you been all my life? You know, all the of first us, time you pick up the, a drink. alcohol or drugs or whatever mm-hmm. the drug of choice is. And my bias is that individuals that have addiction issues, many of them, before they pick up the first time, there's some emotional uh, dysfunction going on. Um, uh, for instance, uh, many of us, uh, when we go to our caregivers and share, well, I'm feeling really scared or um, I'm sad and we get, you shouldn't feel that way. Well, we're it sets in opportunity for us to distrust our own emotions. And um, at that age, it's very important to be accepted or a part of. And so now we set aside what's really going on with us to try to figure out how I'm supposed to be if I'm not supposed to feel this way and many other examples. However, um, 
once we pick up that first chemical, it changes our mood. That's why we call it mood-altering substances. Mm -hmm. It changes our mood. It makes us, I remember feeling like I was the best secretary in the world. My goodness, I was taking, I was a legal secretary. I was taking 110 words a minute of shorthand, typing 80, 90, 100 words, but you couldn't read any of it, you know. (laughs) I was high. I wasn't really um, accurate in everything, but what was going on internally was that I was okay. I was acceptable. I was valuable. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so my chemical use started at age 18 or so and lasted until 36. And I knew nothing about recovery. I knew nothing about AA. I knew nothing about Minnesota, the uh, model or any of that. I'd fly over Minnesota, actually, (laughs) to go to the coast. And um, once we become... Um, involved in an unhealthy relationship with our chemical or drug of choice, that relationship demands of us behaviors that we would normally not do. So I wonder if we could start now, if you would would think about, um, you know, the, the spiritual aspect mm-hmm. of that, or maybe mm-hmm. even as mm-hmm. these years later you've mm-hmm. processed it in mm-hmm. many ways. Yes. What is, and and not even moving into recovery yet, Mm -hmm. but what is the Mm -hmm. religious dimension of addiction? Well, the spiritual aspect of it is that I am okay. And because I'm okay, then I must be acceptable. Uh, I must be valuable. When I'm ingesting chemicals and it's changing my mood, in spite of some of the behaviors that I have exhibited, um... On the in the spiritual domain or the spiritual relationship, which I believe is the core, the very essence of who we are, um, now I'm I'm feeling better about myself. Not so much based on the rea- the truth of it, but because that's the way I feel, and our emotions are a totally different domain. But because we've been disconnected, based on our behaviors. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, what is, and what is that expressing about, you know, what it, some of these religious ideas about what it means to be human or um, what, what are the, how do you understand those desires, yes. that desire to feel good yes. now in a religious light? Yeah. Well, well, let's talk about, let me define religion as far as I see and my, okay. my perception of it is man's attempt to understand God. Spirituality is God's attempt to reach us and touch us. Okay. Uh, the traditional religiosity of it, it's, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't believe that. But I believe in this relationship with God, with our higher power, God requires and desires intimacy with us. And God is a God of truth. And so if I'm operating under untruth about myself, and I need to ingest a mood-altering chemical, um, I am living in an untruth because now I'm putting something in me to feel good about me, and God is wanting me to feel good about me because I'm an intimate relationship, that I am not um, living alone, living by my own means, trying to live this life by myself. Um, does that answer? Yeah. What kind yeah. of where? Yeah. And and tell me this: Were you able in any way, even partially, to conceptualize it that way when you were in the midst of your addiction? Of course not, because my addiction becomes my God. 
all of a sudden now, that thing which makes me feel good, it's not God, but it's the God of the addiction. It's the um, passion of attempting to achieve that level of okayness. It's no longer coming from within. It's coming from without. And, of course, addiction can be more than alcohol or drugs. It can be sex. It can be shopping. It can be any of those things that I am looking toward externally to make me feel good about who I am. And that in and of itself is separate from God. Okay. Okay. And and in the process of actually doing it, no, um, my religious upbringing, uh, any of those things that did not come into play. And the reason for that is because my behaviors as a result of my use is now dictating what I do, not based on my core values, not based on my religious values, because now I'm doing things that I said I would never do. And the shame and guilt of that further alienates me um, from this intimate relationship with God, because on some level, I know God doesn't like this. Mm -hmm. God, God doesn't want this on some level. And do you remember feeling that, thinking that? In those early days? I do remember thinking and feeling that. And in order to um, correct it or in order to make it better initially, um, then I would take overt steps, like go back to church or um, try to pick up the Bible. Um, I remember coming, they they used to call it a fur piece, when the city that you were in would send you home. Uh, because of lack of funds or or being um, abandoned or whatever happened. And that happened to me. I was in Texas. And on the way back to Illinois, um, the city had paid, gave gave me a bus ticket one way back home because I didn't have the friends that I was with. They abandoned me. And here I was. I was on the bus with my Bible trying to replace everybody's name that as I was reading the stories with people that I knew, because I didn't have Mm. a clue, I didn't understand. But I was trying to make that connection the only way that I knew how at that time. Um, So no, it it, on on an intellectual level, I was trying to um, come to that place. But there's also many of us that believe because now the things that I'm doing, I'm totally antithetical to my core beliefs and my core values, that God is out there to zap me. <laughs> you know, didn't don't even want to go. And that was later. My behavior had become so alienated to what I really believed and felt. I, I didn't think God would even want me anymore. Okay. So how did you get into recovery, and what did that mean for you spiritually? Mm. Well, what happened was um, many a myriad of, of adventures or events and, and those kinds of things, even uh, because I was so uh, spiritually, not religiously, but spiritually bankrupt. And I believe spirituality, as an aside here, is having a relationship First of all, with myself, being reconnected to me, having a relationship with others, having a relationship with this entity called God, which I celebrate in religious environments, 
the temple, the church, those kinds of things, and a relationship with nature. Hmm. That's how I see spirituality. And so I was not um, connected in any of those ways. Um, Attempted suicide several times, and it never worked. The last year prior to coming to Minnesota and ultimately getting into a treatment program, I remember sitting in a a theater. It was hot. I was in Michigan. had to be 100 degrees outside. I had attempted suicide um, that summer. I'm sitting there. I'm talking about God trying to reach us, God trying to get our attention. And here's this little green man called Yoda looking right at me and saying, only believe. In Star Wars, that, right. that movie. Right. <laughs> and, and, as, and, and as he was speaking those words in the theater, in the film, it penetrated my heart. Only believe. And my, my sense of that is that whatever was residual in my heart, in my spirit, above and beyond the behaviors that my addiction dictated, God connected with that. And that summer, I came to St. Paul um, to visit a um, sister, a foster sister of mine. And um, actually, it was in January, that following January. And um, we were on the maiden train trip, my, my little one, I had a little one, that stopped here in St. Paul prior to that Amtrak had always gone to Minneapolis. This was the maiden mm. trip to come to St. Paul. And I was on that, and it was in January. It was, I fell in love with this place. And when I share that, people think I am out of my gourd. How do you, back in 78, when winters were really winters, um, fall in love with a place like this? And I did, not knowing that God had really set that up. Because I had determined, and my husband at that time had determined, that we were going to relocate here for our our son's sake. It was Mm. clean. It was nice. And so uh, I did that. Still worked. I was at 3M uh, as a secretary. And as a result of coming back from a dental appointment at 6 o'clock that night, drunk, (laughs) I had to go to treatment. Um. And and I'll just amplify that a little bit, that even though all of these years, 18, 19 years of hell with this disease constantly bombarding me, constantly um, pulling me down and facilitating me doing things that I said I'd never do, I fought that. I told the EAP person, I don't have an alcohol problem. And so the individual in his wisdom said to me, okay, um, because I said I have emotional problems. He said, go to EA, Emotions Anonymous, for a while and see if that works. I did. I was drunk. (laughs) Hmm. What year are we talking here? 1978. Okay. So a long time ago. Oh, yeah. I've been in recovery since 79. Mm -hmm. And so um, I went into treatment because... I had to, or I lose my job. Uh, but I only highlight that because, notwithstanding, for many individuals, when we know that our life is down the tubes, we're still fighting 
arresting the disease. We still think we know best. And um, because my job was on the line and I needed uh, my job, I, I, defer, I deferred and I went. I acquiesced and I went. Well, yeah, keep going. Yeah. As I yeah. went through, um, I went through an outpatient program to here in St. Paul uh, with St. John's at the time. And I'm sitting about the third or fourth day, and we're going over the third step. And say, make, I got this. A, to, yeah, okay, go make, ahead. Make a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand it. And all of a sudden, all of the lights went out. And I'm holding the 12 by 12 book with the step in it. And the light is amplified on this book. All of a sudden, I see myself perched on the top of a ladder. And I'm looking around, queen in charge of everything, doing what I want, when I want, with who I want, being in control. As I looked up, I saw these uh, feet, and I descended down the ladder, and on top of the ladder now was the bottom part of this entity that I know is Jesus Christ, was, is God, for me in that moment of my life. And all of a sudden, that step became very real. This is how I needed to do it. No longer did I run my life, that I am in control, that I think I have the power over everything. But I needed to make a decision to turn that over to this power source. The other aspect of that moment was um, there was someone that really cared about me. And is what you're describing to me sort of a vision? Is it something that happened? It happened. It felt like an experience? It was an experience. I know it happened. The reason I know, after I came out of it, now, mind you, I was in group with 18 other people. When I came out of it, and at that time you could smoke and smoke cigarettes in, in, in treatment, and, and uh, of course you can still have coffee. But when, all, when I came to myself, I'm still sitting here in this circle with this book, and there's nobody else in the room. The most incredulous thing about that is nobody tried to, or maybe they did, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. But they broke, they were out smoking cigarettes and, and having coffee, and here I was, left in that circle. It was the most incredible thing. But up to that moment, I had fought treatment. I was lying. I wasn't telling them anything. Because to admit that meant that somehow I was defective. But when I was shown how to do it with this step, and I always say the third step, it was my lifeline okay. that got. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I'm just, I'm thinking I'm not, I don't want to stop you. I'm. Some people feel, as, as many people have pointed out in, in recent years that, that AA, that the 12 steps were created by white men, mm-hmm. that there's a, that, that it's a response to the, the way men are alcoholic, for example, that maybe for women and maybe even for people of color, this language of of embracing powerlessness is not a good thing. I wonder, 
did this language always does this language work for you? Yes, the okay. language yeah. worked for me because it, it saved yeah. my life. Yeah, um, it doesn't matter who um, the teacher is or what vehicle the truth comes. If I'm willing to embrace it and hear it, then I'm going to take it. My history has been, and maybe that's just germane to me, is that I was raised, my, my, my foster mom, we, we had mixed culture. And so I was raised never to look at anyone on the outside. Always to look at their eyes mm-hmm. and hear. Yeah. I mean, I think even in our culture, in American culture, mm-hmm. this idea of admitting powerlessness mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. very counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's worked 50-some-odd years in this field, in Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and if we can get the truth of the statement and not the letter of it, then individuals have a chance to live, to be healed, to be whole. Typically, individuals that balk at the terminology as a therapist, it raises my red flag. Respecting where they are, but I always throw out, we're saying to you, here is some information and a direction to help relieve the pain. We'll explore where the, the, the basis of that comes from. For many, powerlessness means that they're weak mm-hmm. in our society, yes. even in systemically raised in families, guys, some women even. So to admit powerless, especially over some fluid. <laughs> right. And, but I think it's a spiritual definition of powerlessness that, that does not, is not equated with weak. So it's a, it's a different kind of vocabulary you're using. Yes, but understanding when we're working with individuals, we have to meet them where they are. And so the first layer, of course, is to hear what that means to you and what does that say about you if you admit powerlessness. And then once that layer is back, then individuals come to the place of re- realizing and recognizing to Admit powerlessness is to embrace power. And how's that? I knew you were going to ask me that. It's the same analogy as, and I'm just going at it this way, because off the top of my head, um, that if you want to hold on to someone, you must let them go. If you want to hold on to something, you must let it go. Um, To admit powerlessness, it empowers me because no longer am I fighting or um, expressing energy to prove that I am powerful over it when, in fact, I'm powerless. So if my focus and energy is to try to convince myself and others that I'm powerful over it, That's my focus, as opposed to stepping back and saying, okay, let me look at some of the symptoms of this. Let me me look, has my life been powerless? 
have I in the evening said, I'm just going to go to the corner bar and have one, and I'm coming home, I had a hard day at work, and end up closing it down, drunk, and begin to help that individual identify from their own experience what power is, powerlessness is, but simultaneously, and I believe this, is that if anyone, typically human behavior, if I'm going to let something go, I'm going to replace it with something else. Mm-hmm. Are, is it right that you are a, an ordained minister Yes, now? since 87, yes. And how did that happen? Yes. That happened because the 12 steps to me were the latter or part of the journey. I, I, I applied it. I embraced them. Um, the principle of it, uh, the flow of them um, helped me reconnect to myself, God, others, and nature. However, what began to happen is that there was a hunger that began to stir that was not enough, meaning that the spiritual connectedness that I had gotten from the steps was becoming um, less than what I needed. I mean, I needed more. And I was in the church, uh, Baptist church, and all of a sudden things began to happen in that context, not necessarily at AA or um, in my uh, recovery environment, but in the uh, religi- religious setting that I was in, for instance, I would have um, insights about things that I would have never had, and I would share that with my minister. There was a time that I had, uh, for instance, taken the offering, and as I stepped up to the pulpit, it felt like I was in a sealed all of a sudden, just like in a sealed environment, I don't, still don't know, after 20-some years, still don't know how to describe that. Um, various personal experiences um, that began to occur that led me to the path of first being licensed as a minister. Uh, that means study for three years and then on to ordination three years later. So I think there's something um, very intriguing about how the 12 steps have this kind of um, universal appeal to people Mm -hmm. from many different cultures, many different religious traditions. But I'm also interested in, you know, a story like yours where you've started with the steps. I mean, obviously you had a Christian background, but then moved into deep more deeply into a tradition and i guess i want to ask you sort of just to reflect and it can be sort of free-flowing about how how the 12 steps influenced the way you became a a minister and and vice versa Mm -hmm. um how your how your deepened theology uh affected the way you thought about and lived with this 12 steps what comes to mind I have to go back to what the 12 steps did for me as a human being, notwithstanding even the addiction, notwithstanding even the behaviors that went with it. 
I said earlier that spirituality is about relationship, and that was the um, flow of the steps. That was the vehicle. The 12 steps were the vehicle in which myself became connected to me, others, God, and nature. And so the steps helped, as I'm talking, I can see this realignment, if you will, to um, wholeness. And then what I see, and it's contained within the steps, is service. You give it away. Mm-hmm. That is an important part of the spirituality of the steps, it's isn't it? It's very important. Yeah. In the spirit, that in order, the spiritual side of things, in order to keep anything, you have to give it away. Because our spiritual life and our material life are two different dimensions. And so once I came through that process, once um, of um, treatment, um, of stepping into a more intimate relationship with God, um, then I knew I needed to give it away. I needed to. It was a passion. And and how I chose to um, step off into that was my heart was for ministers and their families. They had nowhere to go. With addiction to talk about, problems? No, mm. just to talk. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in the traditional church. And so I wanted to establish a, a safe place for ministers, wives, ministers, couples, whatever, to begin the counseling aspect of it. Um, the 12 steps are still important to me in that it creates opportunity to stay connected to those um, arenas. Mm-hmm. Um. If I, you know, if I ask you to think about particular steps, <clears throat> and I have them in front of me, I know you Good know, you. but uh, is there anything, you, you talked about step three early in your journey. I wonder as you look at them, again, what jumps out at you is especially important in your spiritual life and maybe something that's deepened over time that you've come to understand in new ways. The steps in and of themselves, before I talk about the spiritual aspect, um, is designed to um, consistently be honest with ourselves and others. And um, that's imperative if I'm going to cultivate and maintain a spiritual life, a healthy spiritual life. Um, our honesty with what's going on with ourselves in the moment is uh, a mandate, and the steps are designed to uh, consistently do that. Of course, step three, again, is my lifeline. Um, Step 10, continue to take personal inventory, Mm -hmm. and when I'm wrong, to promptly admit it. The the whole idea, is it it step four, the fearless and searching Uh, moral inventory? I mean, that is such an incredible discipline for any human being do you think? I think so. Well, one of the things that happens, and, I'm, and, and if we're talking about individuals that are within the program of recovery or talking about individuals that 
out of the program of recovery when they see this step. Step four, make us searching and fearless. Most often when we first see that, we see make us searching and fearful. <laughs> Moral inventory. Immoral inventory. Okay. <laughs> the first time I saw it is, are you crazy? I'm not telling anybody the stuff that I did. <laughs> no way. And if you look in Webster's Dictionary, the definition of moral, one of them, is our ability to distinguish between our right behavior and our wrong behavior. And so if one is within the the confines of um, the recovery, um, we have come to see that if I admit and take a look at, honestly, my behavior, especially the behaviors that I, I am not the proud of, then what I need to do is ask myself, what can I learn from this? This is atypical. What... You know, I'm smiling because I ask myself that often. Betty, are you crazy? <laughs> what? What What did you do that for? Or why did you do that? But instead of running to get a drink or taking a joint, a head off a joint or a line of Coke, now I say at that juncture, what can you learn from this? What do you need to take away from this so you don't repeat that and then throw the rest of it away? And so, hopefully, as a person lives this program of recovery, these steps, it's not the 12 steps and and recovery isn't about putting a plug in the bottle or putting aside the drugs or alcohol. This is about a lifestyle. Right. And the spirituality of the 12 steps is really a practice, isn't it? It is a practice. It's a way of life, what you just described. Yes. And if I am connected to me, and have learned to embrace me and accept me with all my frailties, with all of my strengths, with all of my weaknesses, the good, the bad, and the ugly. If I learn to come to that place of acceptance, once I accept me, then I'm going to be able to accept you. And so it is a practice. The steps helps us continue practicing that, that I'm not overwhelmed now by the things that I've done because the things that I've done wrong, because the things that I've done wrong is fits in life. It doesn't say I'm a bad person or I'm defective or I'm less than. They can be stepping stones so that I don't repeat that or I can learn. Otherwise, I'm going to go around that mountain again. Mm-hmm. Tell me about another step that means something to you okay. that, that epitomizes this. Do you have one that you want me to talk about? Oh, no, not necessarily. I mean, I think what is after that, step five yes. is... Admitted to God, to ourselves, and another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. And the power of that step is, for one, God already knows, okay? We, God already knows. Um, but it's a step of humbleness. It really is. Mm-hmm. One of the things that happens, um, and I'm going to um, regress a moment and talk about that step four. When I first looked at it, I said, are you crazy? I'm not telling anybody the stuff that I've done, the behavior. But as long as I hold on to that, it has power over me, not the chemical. I'm not talking about the chemical at this point or at this juncture in the steps. It's about my behaviors now. And as long as I try to suppress and submerge the behaviors because of shame, guilt, embarrassment, 
then that has power over me. Not only power, but everything, when I think about the behaviors, every thought we have always has a, an emotion attached to the thought. The events don't create the emotion. The interpretation of the event creates the emotion. And so every time I think about something that was against my core value, then I have a thought about that behavior. And as a result of that thought, I have a feeling or an emotion that's attached to it. And I don't want to feel that feeling of shame or guilt. And so I'm, I know how to make that go away. And so in the step four, then, as I'm looking at this behavior, and Owning it, that's the first part, that's mine. And then sit across from someone like uh, a clergy person is who I always advocate because by law we are exempt from revealing any information we hear in this fifth step. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Once I can look you in the face and say, yes, I did that. I didn't intend to, I didn't want to, but I did it. No longer does it have power over me. Tell me about your, your uh, when you went through the fifth step the first time. Can you tell me about that? Um, I think the fourth step was really the breakthrough for me. Once I and typically I, that's the, that's what I hear. It once I I'm, I was willing to sit down and look at it and own it because again I wasn't willing to do that. But once I was able to sit down and own my behavior and then sit in my fifth state, we're talking 20-some years now, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, And tell that individual, if I recall, that individual was exactly what a fifth step listener does. They listen. It's not a counseling situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And to be able to talk about it. And this person's eyes did not say, you are so bad. There was no aura about that individual that indicated that somehow it was less than dirt, which I had already always thought. Mm-hmm. Then the relief came. The ground didn't open up. There were no lightning bolts. The relief came and the cleansing came. The freedom came. And I often hear from individuals that go through that experience, the freedom, the lightness of that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, did you bring some materials with you? I did. You, okay. I'd I, like to look. I gave um, one of them. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay. Let's, let me just look at it and maybe ask you some questions sure. about it. Yeah. And we, we can edit this. So, I mean, I'm letting you. It's it's fine to just say as much as you want to say. So this would be what? The Spiritual Development Series is what God gave me in 1987. I'm sitting at my kitchen table or dining table. You're going to have to say that over again as I exit. Okay. Sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. What you're holding in your hand is a, um, a flyer, if you will brochure around the spiritual development series and I believe God gave that as a tool even now to help individuals in fact I'll be teaching that at the alive and free um, 
workshop coming up at Hazelden at the end of the month. However, I'm sitting there thinking, well, I didn't know what I was doing, but all of a sudden, this material began to just tumble out of me, and I grabbed pencil and paper, and there are four hours, four components that ended up uh, being this, that literally, pretty much other than tweaking it one way or another for the audience, is exactly what God gave me that day. And it talks about a lot of what we've been talking about, spiritual development, Mm -hmm. moving from one place to another uh, in the spiritual aspect of things. Our spirit, I believe, my bias is, is the very core of who we are. Mm -hmm. Have you, uh, do you have people in those seminars who come from many different kinds of spiritual backgrounds? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And and I know um, it was... Of course, I could not at that time, even now, come up with anything as, I believe, as profound as that because it it embraces individuals. It embraces all religious backgrounds. I've had grown men come up to me after weeping because they've never heard this, and it's the freedom of it. Um, as a therapist or a counselor, we don't have time really to deal with spiritual issues. Especially back here, when back then when I was um, counseling at Hazelden, of course, we have a whole community of individuals that helps persons deal with their spiritual uh, life. However, um, we would be we would tell individuals, "You need to turn your will and your life over to care to the care of God." Step three. Step five: admitted to God, ourselves, and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six talks about God. We're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understand him, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. We're telling individuals about this God. And if this individual is saying, yeah, right, God doesn't really care about me, then what has happened? We've set them up. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this spiritual development series, either in a workshop or as I consulted with various treatment programs, it was our our components, helps patients and clients understand how they understand God. Okay. And is it your feeling that everybody has some understanding of God or most everybody? I believe that this is my bias, my mm-hmm. belief that there is a place when all, within all human beings that only God can touch. And have you worked with people who did not did not experience that place in yes, themselves? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I've worked with individuals that had no history, no experience, no training, no exposure to God. I've worked with individuals that just flat out doesn't believe there's a God. And and what happens to to their connection to these steps yes, and, in recovery exactly. because of that? Yes. Well, then they, if, if one doesn't believe and the nature of this disease is that I am in the center of my universe, me, myself, and I, I'm in control, I'm in power. And so the, the first step even talks about our powerlessness. Um, the second step, come to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Then wherever that individual is, within the sphere of their influence, if they are willing to get off the center of their universe and replace it even with a peer, even in their AA group, 
if they're willing to be vulnerable to the exposure of others speaking into their life, then they have a chance. Mm-hmm. And at that point in time, it can be God in, in their peers, in the group, the group conscious. If, if you're willing to step away and get off the center of your little universe and say, I am willing to be vulnerable and transparent, then the power of the, 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 the power of this, this entity called God can reach us in any way through people, through circumstance, through a little green man up on the screen saying, only believe. However, that is. I know that there are a couple, some movements out there now by of people who want to talk about recovery from addiction and alcoholism without using the imagery of of the higher power and of God. Um, I'm sort of sensing that for you, that's not negotiable. Well, I never, unless I was directed to do that, um, never would. Um, work in an arena because it's against my biases. Mm-hmm. And the, the the sweetness about these steps states, God as you understand them, as long as it's something. <laughs> something other than yourself. Yourself. Um, what's the tension, the connection, or the contradiction or not between saying that you need to get yourself out of the middle and that you need to connect yourself to yourself. Oh, that's good. I've not thought about that. You'll edit that. But um, I hadn't thought about that. The tension between saying, being reconnected with myself Mm -hmm. and getting myself out of the center of my little universe. Just off the top of my head, mm-hmm. I'm thinking being in the center of the un- my little universe is that I don't let anyone else in, and my ability or power is very limited, and I'm operating based on what I think, I feel. I'm not allowing anyone else in. I'm not allowing any other input in to help me. Um, literally, I'm built a wall around to protect myself, typically. Um, but if I'm building a wall around myself to protect myself from others, I can't get out. That doesn't necessarily mean that I'm connected to myself. That doesn't necessarily mean I'm connected to my okay. spirit. Mm-hmm. Because I'm operating from a different dimension or different realm. It's my own thought process. It's my intellectualizing, my rationalizing. I've perhaps shut off my emotions and shut off my feelings. From It doesn't necessarily even have to be addiction, although we're talking about it. And again, I go back to my bias. By the time many of us pick up our first chemical, emotionally we've already experienced some dysfunction or some pain. Mm -hmm. Okay, And so having that part of us cut off, then we go and live in our intellect, in our mind, whatever I can figure out, whatever I can think to do. And so, but that doesn't necessarily mean because I'm operating from that stance, being in the center of my little universe, doesn't automatically mean I'm connected to myself. Did, did I do that one? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I want to ask Kate what she's thinking. I think we've covered a lot of ground. I think yeah. she's going to be talking through the headphones. 
<laughs> I don't get. Oh yeah, you can hear her, can't you? Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. Mm -mm. I don't hear her. Oh, you don't hear her. All right, all right. Okay. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All right. There is a concept that that recurs in the twelve steps of um, of willingness to to be in recovery, right? To give this up, to give oneself over, um, and I'm wondering if if that in itself is is a kind of spiritual struggle mm. and and virtue. How you understand that? How did that? You know, was the willingness. Uh, uh, was the acquiring mm. a willingness a part of your story that had its own dimensions, its own dynamics? I believe um, the willingness. Let me talk. Let me speak first about um, the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. It would be fear. I see it as there's some fear going on. There's some fear operating in that individual. There was some fear in me that all of the things that I thought about myself were true. That's why I came to that treatment experience not wanting to be honest. I didn't know that I had the right to express my feelings. I didn't know anything about emotional boundaries. So there's a lot of fear that goes on that would prevent willingness. That was that was my experience um, <clears throat> at that third that moment in time in that group. Um, I became honest immediately after because there was an entity that I saw that cared about me. Not only cared about me, but showed me how to do this. So the willingness felt like it was it needed a, a, something outside yourself to bring you to that. Yes, and and is that willingness is that constant? Have you ever? felt that waning in these 20-plus years of recovery? The willingness to do what? Just to be, to be, um, to be in recovery. To Well, there have been moments that it would be so cool to have a joint. I mean, that's, I mean, I'm just being honest, yeah. <laughs> to have a drink. I mean, that's the reality of it. However, over practice, practicing feeling good about who I am in the midst of events, circumstances that blindside me, that occur that I don't want to occur, that don't happen, that I want to happen. The practice of thinking about it and not a knee-jerk reaction to it keeps me sober. My, my, my meetings, my talking about it, and that comes from connecting with myself or that experience of the acceptance uh, of, of uh, pulling down an imagination or a picture in my head, an image of how Betty should be and learning to live with who Betty is 
and being okay with that. So the willingness is not so much about should I use, should I, should, shouldn't I use. The willingness is about continuing to be human, continuing to be um, frail, <laughs> continuing to turn my will and my life over to the care of God in any situation. Life is about moments. I've learned that. It's not something down the road. Life is right now, in this moment, at this time when I have to make this decision. What am I going to do? So the willingness in that aspect. Um, it's something that you have to muster in every moment. Or practice in every I moment, think, maybe. I, I think it's like our using behaviors, our using. It became a habit as well, um, as a predisposition for many of us. And so as we practice these new behaviors, we become. We become these steps. We don't do these steps. We become these steps. I mean, this, it, it talks about who we are. It talks about a power greater than ourselves, no matter what avenue that power chooses to touch us, to meet us. And it also talks about others in our life as well as giving it away. So we become this. And so in those moments of decision, I've become this. It doesn't mean that I don't have opportunity to do something different or to um, regress back to old thoughts, old feelings, and consequently old behaviors. I have those opportunities every day. But because I've come to that place of, of, of being able to look in the mirror and say, girl, you just screwed up. What do you need to learn from this? And when I do, I'm still okay. It's becoming. And that's all of us. Becoming that which we have been ordained to be. And, and many of us, and that's why, that's why I believe there's so many AA 12-step uh, groups. Yeah. Because of the principle. Not the legality or the law, but the principle. That direction that gives us the opportunity to reconnect with ourselves. Well, I think that's your last word. I think that was great. Yeah. Okay. Thank Good. you. Thanks. Yeah. 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 We're in recovery? Okay. Okay. Um, how long have you been in recovery then? How many years? I think you said this, but I, tell me I again. I was trying to figure that out. I think it's um, 1979, yeah. so it's about 23 years. Okay. Are you at, do you work at Hazelden yes. now? Yes. Mm-hmm. And how long have you been at Hazelden? July, it'll be two years. Okay. And this is a program that you do through Hazelden, um, or is this separate? The spiritual development, I teach that, or I lecture once a month. Can I keep these? Oh, of course. Okay, once a month um, in a rotation with other staff. Okay. Um, that's my lecture that I do. The Alive and Free is um, just a one-time okay. event that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and tell me what you did. You were counseling before mm-hmm. you went to Hazelden? Actually... 
Um, when I started out, um, I started out at the treatment program that I went through. They invited me to work there. Um, and over the years, I've worked with adolescent programs um, exclusively. And prior to coming to Hazelden, I was a program director in Florida um, and uh, developed some programs for them, and then returned to Minnesota and worked at Teen Challenge as pastoral counselor. Okay. Um, and that was immediately uh, prior to coming to Hazelden. Great. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Do you want to, are we going to do pictures? You want me here? Okay. 